Welcome to Plato's Pod. Today is May 16, 2021. This is a live meetup through Toronto Philosophy Meetup, Calgary Philosophy Meetup, and Online Rebels. I'm Eva coordinating today's meeting. I'm excited to invite James now for today's discussion. What are we discussing about today, James? Well, thank you, Evan. Uh, great to be here on this uh, wonderful, uh, sunny, summery uh, morning here in Toronto and welcoming those who have been with us before, but also a number of new people, which is great to see. So we're here this morning to discuss Plato's dialogue, The Euthyphro, which is a relatively short dialogue, but I think it follows quite well on our last discussion a few weeks ago on the Critias. And so in The Euthyphro, Plato is looking at our connection with God or the gods, and in particular in the context of piety and and what it means to be pious. And there's a a number of logical things that he does in this dialogue, which I think are quite interesting. And so we'll look forward to discussing those. And just wanted to remind people, as we talked about last time, after we finished the recording at noon, we'll stay online for those who want to join us for Plato's Cafe. And the idea is that we could just, you know, have an informal, unrecorded discussion, whether it's on the topics that we've discussed in today's session or on any of other Plato's other dialogues or even just philosophy in general. I think it would be interesting to just uh, have that discussion. So anybody who wants to stay online after we finish the recording and then just join us in a casual discussion for a half an hour, that would be that would be great. And then I think we'll think about kind of winding down the podcast for the summer months, just because people will get busy and people want to be out doing their own things. Uh, but hopefully we'll get another session or two in. Uh, I think next I would like to look at the first part of the Theotetus. The Theotetus is a very long dialogue, but the first part is the part that deals with the world before motion is brought into the picture, which is in the second part of the Theotetus. So I think we'll look at the Theotetus next. So those who want to start reading that, as I said, it's long, but we'll look at the first roughly half of it and see how far we can get. I've got a couple of readings that uh, Eva will share on the screen today, and hopefully we could have a volunteer or two to help read. They're relatively short passages and there's not a lot of words, but uh, it would be great if we could uh, have a volunteer or two read either the part of Socrates or the part of Euthyphro. And uh, just a reminder, um, if, if people could use the raise hands function in Zoom when they'd like to speak, that would be great. We'll, uh, I'll, I'll take people in the order in which they put their hands up and give preference to those who haven't spoken before. And we'll see what uh, points we can make. There's also the chat function on screen, which I'm not able to follow too closely as I'm focusing on the episode itself, but we do record the chat function and it's something that I always uh, enjoy looking at after the episode is over. Also a reminder that we are posting these as podcasts on rss.com slash podcast slash Plato's pod. And it's been a great pleasure actually to re-listen to some of the episodes that we've recorded before as I was doing this morning, actually uh, just kind of reminded of a number of very interesting points that were brought up in, in our own dialogue that um, individually, it's hard to think of everything, you know, and so there's some very interesting points that were brought up in our uh, previous dialogues. And I think that's really a a key purpose of of the dialogue method that Plato employs, is that we learn something from each other in the course of this discussion. Uh, Each of us has our own individual perspectives. And then when we start to bring the perspectives together, 
it's interesting what new knowledge is derived, what things that we we haven't thought of before, how those manage to touch us and the meaning that it creates when we engage in this dialogue. So definitely encourage everybody to participate either by sharing in the readings today or uh, just with your thoughts and questions. And then uh, by all means, please do uh, feel free to listen to the recorded podcasts uh, if you'd like afterwards. So so welcome again to uh, those returning and who have been with us here before and a special welcome to uh, a number of new folks who have joined us today. So welcome all to Plato's Pod and look forward to diving into the discussion on the Euthyphro, which is again about our relationship with God or the gods. Maybe I'll just start the discussion by explaining this uh, screen image that I have uh, on my screen behind me. And this is a painting of Galileo being subjected to the Inquisition. This was in the early 1600s. I'm sorry, I've forgotten the year. But he was accused of being impious, going against what God said in terms of his views that were expressed that the earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around. So it was accepted view, widely accepted view for a long time that uh, everything revolved around the earth. And when Galileo, the great scientist, started using telescopes and he saw interesting things like the fact that Jupiter, he could see four moons of Jupiter, and he could see that these moons of Jupiter were orbiting Jupiter. They weren't orbiting Earth. And that seemed to contradict this idea that was held for millennia, that that the Earth was the center of everything and that everything revolved around the Earth. And so that was seen as impious, and the Inquisition subjected Galileo to this questioning, and then they forbid him from publishing his views. And this was not too long after Giordano Bruno, the very innovative scientist who has some really interesting new ideas, uh, was burned alive at the stake in 1600 for being impious. And so in the Euthyphro, Plato talks about piety, but we have, I think, a problem with the definition of piety, don't we? Is piety always the same definition now as it was yesterday, or as it was 100 years ago, or as it was, you know, 500 years ago in Galileo's time? How do we approach the the definition of piety and, and our perception, what, the, the, the meaning of it? And, you know, is, is it always something the same? And I just wanted to maybe just start the discussion off with that. And, and you know, the, this idea that, you know, the whole dramatic setup in this dialogue, which is where Socrates meets Euthyphro, who is about to prosecute his father for murder and for being impious. And I'm just wondering what, what people think about piety and how we define piety and what it means to be pious. Were there any particular things in the dialogue that struck you about this this idea and this meaning and and how we apply that meaning, whether it's in the context of Galileo and the Inquisition in the screen image behind me, you know, because that was a long time in the past and maybe we know a lot more now. Or are there any other contexts, historical contexts that we can think of that that uh, really affect our understanding of the meaning of piety? I wonder if anybody has any thoughts on that. There's an interesting thing that the dialogue starts with, and I just maybe, Eva, if you could just share the, the screen, the first page on the screen of the reading. And uh, while we're doing that, uh, we'll take Moshe. Moshe, you have a thought? I had a thought in 1981, and it was so uncomfortable, I've never thought again. But uh, to talk about piety, I, I think it's um, 
you can get some clarity about um, uh, piety by what impiety is. And um, uh, you're right. I mean, the meanings have, have changed. And, uh, you know, the old uh, classical Greek or, 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 or Platonic idea of, um, of um, impiety was to, um, um, uh, was the idea that man could have the same knowledge as God. And um, because man is so different from God uh, that the possibility that man could have the same knowledge as God was, uh, was impious. And um, uh, we, we also know, well, at least platonically from the Phaedrus, and I've come back to this several times, uh, the, the gods are only the gods by their closeness, their proximity to the forms. And so uh, as we gain greater knowledge of the forms, we become like the god, uh, uh, not the um, uh, anthropomorphic um, uh, god of the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition, but, uh, you know, the god of, of uh, what, the, what Plato meant by, uh, by god. At the time of Galileo, uh, this idea of God um, and and uh, knowledge of what God had had been had been uh, co-opted by the church, and now the church had an official stand on a number of scientific things, and you know there's it, clearly they were out of their logical bounds by doing that. I mean, people who are experts on religion. Uh, should be consulted uh, for their expertise on religion, but not their expertise on physics or chemistry or biology or anything like that. It's not their, it's not their thing. Uh, and the other way around, you know, to go and, and talk to a, uh, go and talk to a medical doctor about God. Well, they're they're medical doctors. They don't they didn't study that. Um, so at at the time of Galileo, uh, piety was doing what the church said, and impiety was doing some was doing something against the church. Uh, today in the 20th century or 21st century, I don't know if we have a clear idea of what piety is at all. Uh, you know, the whole idea of some sort of reverence or holiness uh, has been uh, sort of whitewashed uh, out of our cultural thinking, except for uh, some, uh, some small um, or smaller pockets. Uh, so um, those are my remarks. I think we gain a little knowledge of what piety is by understanding impiety, and it certainly has changed from the time of the Greeks to Galileo to now. Well, thank you, and, and uh, you know, you used a key word there is understanding, and we talked uh, last episode actually when we talked about the Critias um, about the nature of understanding and and um, this idea that understanding maybe requires some sort of a harmony. I think that was uh, uh, that was maybe uh, Greg who talked about harmony and understanding uh, last episode. And last episode, indeed, uh, we talked about, um, there was a great uh, quote here, if I can just find it now on my screen, uh, from the Critias, uh, in terms of, uh, it was a bit of a warning, actually. Uh, it's at 107B in Critias, uh, in which it said, he is a successful speaker when he speaks of gods to an audience of mortals. The audience's lack of experience and sheer ignorance concerning a subject they can never know for certain provide the would-be speaker with great eloquence. And so, as you said, Moshe, you know, there's been some change over time in the understanding of the meaning of piety. 
from the time of the Greeks to the time of Galileo to now. And uh, actually, I was very interested when I looked up in the in the Oxford English Dictionary, my edition from the mid seventies. Um, there's actually a definition of piety that is uh, a negative uh, definition. One of the definitions is actually in the negative sense that uh, calling somebody pious is uh, a bit of an ironic or uh, um, accusatory um, expression, a way of uh, saying that maybe they are being overly judgmental. Um, so there's this usage has developed over time as well, this negative usage. Um, JK, what do you think? Welcome. Hello there. Yeah, good morning. Um, yeah, it seems that the, um, you know, during that time that they were, you know, uh, when they were having this um, discussion about piety, uh, there's the, the gods, right, who are supposed to be models of piety, but they were a little bit, um, at times, you know, uh, you know, they, uh, they're more powerful be uh, beings than humans, but, and and for that reason, they they were supposed to be a model of uh, of what uh, you know what is best. But they were also kind of unreal too, right? They <laughs> they sometimes uh, behave, you know, uh, in their own way, and so maybe that was kind of misleading uh, people like um, Euphoro into uh, a kind of misunderstanding what pi what pious means. I don't know. Because it's, uh, I think it's a kind of a cultural thing, you know, like um, in other cultures, you have more of a, you have a, you have this uh, familiar of piety, right? You have a, a piety based on family relations, you know, that uh, you're supposed to respect your, your, your elders, right? Um, in the family. And that extends out into the rest of society. And piety, you know, is understood in this way, but it's the, at uh, that time, the uh, the gods are kind of transcendent, and you know, um, like the forms, right? And so maybe it's a little bit more difficult to understand, and it becomes ambiguous what piety is. So I think um, that's what the discussion is about: uh, what is piety, you know? And I was a little confused too by, by even at the end, uh, what uh, you know, the. Uh, the kind of arguments that Socrates is offering about what piety is and relating it to to geometry and mathematics. Um, it's, um, so I had a, you know, so to me, I'm, I'm not clear what, what, the, what he meant by Socrates meant by piety either. Thank you. And uh, I think as always, Socrates leaves us somewhat uh, bewildered in wanting to question more without giving us a, a definite answer. Um, but, you know, I think that's, that, that's something that I, I think can continue to be discussed for a long time. And I guess that's part of the benefit of discussion that I was talking about at the, uh, at the outset. And, you know, you touched on the the idea that the gods don't necessarily agree among themselves all the time, and and that's discussed directly uh, in this uh, in this dialogue. You know, there's the the passage at eight uh, b, um, in which Socrates says, "So it is in no way surprising if your present action, namely punishing your father, may be pleasing to Zeus but displeasing to Cronus and Uranus, pleasing to Hephaestus but displeasing to Hera." And so with any other gods who differ from each other on this subject. 
Um, and so at the time of ancient Greece, I mean, we had this, this idea of these multiple gods, this, this sort of hierarchy of gods, and the idea that the gods could disagree among themselves. Uh, and so how were we f- to find a single form or a general form of piety uh, if the gods themselves uh, are in disagreement? Um, and so this, is, this occupies some of the, uh, you know, the, the train of discussion in, in the dialogue. So thank you for bringing that up, that, that idea of the disagreement among the gods. Jane, welcome. What are your thoughts? Good morning, everybody. Um, uh, my thoughts are, well, at least not my thoughts, but based on the dialogue, it seemed that piety and impiety is directly connected to and is, like Socrates said, a part of the um, justice. So we have justice and injustice, as well as he links it to the terms of evil and good. Um, uh, regarding the disagreement among the gods, it's actually kind of interesting because in this dialogue Socrates indirectly implies that the gods do not themselves may not themselves understand what is just and what is unjust and what is evil and what is good and therefore this always causes conflict among the gods as well I guess this is one of the dialogues that that illustrates what Socrates got into trouble for in, in the first place too um, and it's 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 interesting that I think this this sort of dichotomy of justice and justice, evil and good is 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 present um, th- throughout all the ages. And I guess the reason why impiety and piety are not popular terms in in our modern society is because the words justice and justice, evil and good, uh, we have a lot of people who feel very differently about each of those terms. So if you ask one person, what is justice and what is injustice, you may get very different answers. There's a sort of, I guess, a polarization. And it, it, it feels like in modern society, those terms have a very, can have a very subjective meaning nowadays. And objectivity seems to be getting farther and farther away from us. But that's, that's my personal view. Um, so yes, that's, that's all I wanted to share. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, you use the word subjective and objective, and I think that's uh, actually very key to what Plato is trying to do um, in that little argument, that little train of logic that leads up to 11a. Uh, And that's something that I definitely want to touch on uh, is paragraph 11a uh, and the, the train of logic that led to that. And this constant shift between subject and object. Uh, So the subject, um, the subject is that which is affected by something and the object receives the action of something. And you know, when they talk about, uh, in, in, when Socrates and Euthyphro talk about uh, whether pious is being loved by the gods or whether being loved by the gods makes you pious, um, that's a bit of uh, the account of the reasons why. Uh, we might consider somebody pious. And it was last episode, actually, when we talked about the Critias, that Eric, who was here at the time, uh, reminded us of Plato's dialogue, the Mino, in which uh, Plato, or through Socrates, said that all knowledge is recollection. And then right at the end of the Mino, Socrates then further adds, and recollection is the account of the reasons why. Um, and so what are the reasons why somebody might be considered pious? And I think that's a very important part about understanding um, 
the sequence of logic that makes us think that something is pious or not pious. Uh, you know, again, in the screen image, the idea that thinking that uh, the earth was not the center of, of all uh, revolution in the universe uh, was somehow thought to be impious. Um, and how does, how does that reasoning come to be? And then how does that reasoning change? So here we are, you know, some 500 years after Galileo, and our reasons have changed. We would not consider somebody who holds that view to be impious. Uh, because we know now that the widely held view um, that the earth was the center of everything was wrong. Uh, but And yet somehow it was considered impious at that time. Greg, welcome. What are your thoughts? Um, yeah. yeah. Um, as, as I was reading uh, this thing and then in reflection of uh, what the people just said about uh, uh, the, the piety, and I think uh, at the end of the day, I really, it's uh, it's uh, piety is a reflection of the morality of the society at the time, and uh, through throughout the history and through the culture, they change, uh, depending on the time and uh, depends on the the society. So, uh, so at the at the Greek time, you know, everything was modeled around gods. Gods were considered as a reality, not just uh, imagined. Therefore, uh, the Greek uh, live around. Uh, their life around around the gods, what the gods think, what the gods say, and they invented and and they don't separate the, what's invented and what's real. And uh, so so I'm 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 looking at the, the thing, and what strikes me is that uh, uh, you know this uh, this dialogue is considered to be one of the early dialogue of Plato. And I look at that, see that it seems that Plato has uh, has thought. Uh, uh, a long, uh, long and hard, and in, in this early time, he pointed out that there's a contradiction uh, of using God as a standard. So, so in order to launch his his philosophical uh, discussion about uh, you know the, the the rationality, where he really laid a lot of foundations, that he had to take down the, the absolute authority of the gods, the system of gods, because uh, that's their standard. Uh, standards for everything, including how to reason, how to knowledge, and so on. So I think uh, uh, this may be the beginning of using uh, Socrates, uh, uh, this dialogue to to really, uh, you know, challenge the view of God being a standard. And by doing so, he brought out a few contradictions there, you know, in terms of um, the cost effect. What is the cost? What is the effect? Really, what, which which come first? And these are the things that at the time. It was not clear, and uh, and as bring out, and then and also the idea of a definition, which later on becomes so important as as a form. Here he bring out, like oh, you can't really define these things. It's not clear, uh, and, and uh, so these things is already see the uh, set a stage for his later dialogues. I find it's a, it's a fascinating and very interesting. Thank you, and uh, you know, I really like the way that you. Talk to you use those words uh, the the idea of the contradiction of using God as a standard, and this confusion between cause and effect, which really starts uh, at nine D and goes to eleven A. Um, and you know what is what is the cause of piety and what is the effect of piety? And again, getting back to that subject and object idea that that uh, Jane started, I think uh, talking about. Um, and, uh, you know, really understanding, you know, what, what is the cause and what is the effect and it, can you use God as a standard? I would just remind, 
you know, again, as I tend to always do in these episodes after reading the Timaeus, uh, 28a in Timaeus, which makes that distinction between the realm of being, which always is and never becomes, and uh, the realm of becoming, which never is, but is always becoming. Um, Plato elsewhere described the present as a state of coming to be. And so, you know, here we are, we're actors in the present, and we're trying to understand something that's eternally in being, which is maybe the gods. Um, and so maybe that's part of understanding this distinction between who are we and what are the gods, you know? And so if we say, if we could maybe agree, I don't know if we agree, but maybe we can agree that the gods are eternal and we are not eternal. We're trying to understand something eternal. Well, in, in Timaeus 28a, um, they, they make the point that to understand the realm that always is and never becomes, this eternal realm of being, which perhaps is the realm that the gods inhabit, um, you need to use a reasoned account. It, it actually says reasoned account. And then we get into what Eric reminded us last episode, which is this idea of knowledge as recollection and the account of the reasons why. So, Greg, you just reminded us, you know, this in forming the account of the reasons why, we need to know what the cause is and we need to know what the effect is. And we need to know who we are compared to who the gods are. So a uh, very powerful point that you just made. And uh, thank you for that. And then we'll go on to, to JK. Um, welcome, JK. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I was just thinking about uh, this idea of uh, the cause and effect. And the uh, and um, you talked about the leader and the lead and so forth. And uh, maybe at the, you know, this idea of um, that we love, you know, what we... Uh, what we believe loves us, right? And we, so we love to be loved. And so if we have an idea that, that we, that, that we can latch on to, that gives us a sense of, of being loved, or, uh, then that's an, that's, that's what we believe is pious and, 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 you know, what is ho holy. So maybe that's what he's getting at, that the, uh, that we're, um, you know, we uh, we're getting away from what the truth of what uh, is is pious by by um, by being that you know misled by by this idea that uh, that, that that we have uh, somehow latched onto. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure yet. Yeah, I mean this this idea that that piety is some sort of fixed thing that doesn't change over time and isn't subject to our interpretation. Somehow it's you know as Greg said. Um, you know, this, this idea that, you know, if you use God as the standard, then how do you understand what God is? And that is, so I think there's, there's a warning here. And uh, Eva, if you would just display that first page, I just thought I would just read that part from the beginning of the Euthyphro at 2C. And this is where, uh, before they get into the argument that, that JK just referred to, um, Socrates is just explaining his own his own prosecution or the the prosecution that Miletus is bringing against him, and this would of course lead to the apology, the, the famous trial of Socrates, and then to the Phaedo, to the death of Socrates. So here, Socrates is foreshadowing his own demise as a physical being, but not necessarily as a soul of ideas that has affected us throughout time ever since. And so this is in uh, 2C of the Euthyphro, and Socrates is saying, 
what charge? So he's talking about the charge that Miletus brought against him. He says, what charge? A not ignoble one, I think. For it is no small thing for a young man, Miletus was young, uh, to have knowledge of such an important subject, subject being piety and, and having claimed that Socrates, or, or having accused Socrates of being impious. He says he knows how our young men are corrupted and who corrupts them. He is likely to be wise, and when he sees my ignorance corrupting his contemporaries, he proceeds to accuse me to the city as to their mother. I think he is the only one of our public men to start out the right way, for it is right to care first that the young should be as good as possible, just as a good farmer is likely to take care of the young plants first and of the others later. So too, Miletus first gets rid of us who corrupt the young, shoots, as he says, and then afterwards, he will obviously take care of the older ones and become a source of great blessing for the city, as seems likely to happen to one who started out this way. And I, I, I love this passage. I mean, it's right at the start of the dialogue, but you can see the irony that Socrates is, is putting here uh, for one who starts out this way. Um, and one who starts out this way, I think he's referring to assumptions that Miletus is making about what piety is and what piety is not. And it was on these assumptions that Miletus accused Socrates of impiety, and it was for those reasons eventually that Socrates would be put to death. And so this is, I think, a bit of a warning. And then we saw the warnings again in the Critias, which we discussed last time, you know, this idea that um, Anybody can make grand speeches about, you know, what the gods are and what piety is uh, to an audience of people who can't possibly know for certain what, what it is, because to understand what it is, we need to make an account of the reasons why. Um, so I, I thought this was a very interesting beginning to this dialogue and, and something that really reflected a warning about making assumptions about that which we cannot know for sure. And so it really goes to the nature of knowledge, doesn't it? You know, what it is, what is it to know something? What is it to know what piety is um, if you don't know what piety is not? Uh, so maybe you need to know all of it. And to know all of that, that's maybe where we need the account of the reasons why. So maybe having touched on the idea of, of that, um, that logical sequence. Um, Eva, I'm just wondering if you could go to the third page, which is reading number two. And I'm just wondering if there would be a volunteer or two. Uh, I could read one of the parts if we don't have two volunteers, but it'd be great if we could get one volunteer at least um, to read just this short passage, and if we could have one person playing the role of Socrates and one playing the, the role of Euthyphro. Um, and then we can maybe just discuss this last part of this, uh, this section that uh, leads, to this, um, leads to this kind of logical sequence um, that gets them into some sort of disagreement. Euthyphro starts with an assumption and then um, finds out that his assumption isn't necessarily correct. And this, this seems to happen all the time when Socrates speaks to people. It certainly happened to Mino in that dialogue, the Mino that, uh, that I mentioned earlier, the, the idea that Mino at the beginning thought he knew what virtue was. And Socrates says, okay, well, what's virtue? And Mino starts giving examples of what virtue is. 
Uh, and Socrates says, well, I didn't ask for examples. I asked for, for the general form of virtue. And, and so we've been talking, mentioned the word forms here, you know, this idea of the general form being the idea itself of, of virtue, or in this case, in this dialogue of piety. Um, what is the, is there, is there some general form to which all particular examples of piety are rooted? So could I ask for, if there's anybody interested in volunteering for either role of Socrates or Euthyphro? I got dibs on Socrates. All right, Joel is Socrates. And um, why didn't I be Euthyphro? Oh, Jane. Jane, would you like to take one of the roles? Uh, yes, I could go ahead. With All right, Joel, Joel and Jane. Joel is Socrates and Jane is Euthyphro. Thank you. However, is this the correction we are making in our discussion that what all the gods hate is impious and what they all love is pious and that what some gods love and other, others hate is neither or both? Is that how you now wish us to define piety and impiety? What prevents us from doing so, Socrates? For my part, nothing, Euthyphro, but you look whether on your part, this proposal will enable you to teach me mostly easily what you promised. I would certainly say that the pious is what all the gods love, and the opposite, what all the gods hate, is the impious. Then let us again examine whether that is a sound statement, or do we let it pass, or if, and if one of us or someone else merely says that something is so, do we accept that it is so? Or should we examine what the speaker means? We must examine it, but I certainly think that this is now a fine statement. We shall soon know better whether it is. Consider this, is the pious being loved by the gods because it is pious, or is it pious because it is being loved by the gods? Well, thank you both for that. that. That's great. And I think it's really good to hear the, the words out loud and to really understand to put ourselves in that setting, you know, and to put ourselves in this discussion that Socrates and Euthyphro are having. Um, and so a little bit of the background of this section is that, you know, Socrates has said, well, you know, if you know Euthyphro, what piety is, then maybe you can be my teacher. And then maybe when I'm standing up in that trial for uh, that Miletus is accusing me of impiety, I could blame you, my teacher, for teaching me to be to be impious, and so then I'm not at fault. I'm not the cause of the impiety. Uh, so it, it was kind of really neat little background to that uh, to that uh, section of the dialogue. So, what do people think about that last um, the last uh, few lines there? We shall soon know better whether it is. Consider this. Is the pious being loved by the gods because it is pious, or is it pious because it is being loved by the gods? So what is the cause and what is the effect here? And then how does Socrates build out that argument in, in terms of cause and effect in, in really trying to understand the account of the reasons why? Why is it that something is pious and something is not pious? So we start with the idea that um, pious uh, that that because somebody is pious, um, it is therefore loved by the gods, or because it is loved by the gods, it is therefore pious. So the question is, where is the because and where is the therefore? 
and where the where do the gods fit into the picture and you know are the gods eternal is it is it this problem that uh, that Greg mentioned of using God as a standard Joel what are your thoughts uh, just very quickly so the the very last sentence is uh, it, it essentially is the euthyphro dilemma just clarifying that that's it's just my quick question this this that last sentence is the big that couple thousand year prolong of that moral question a good question yeah uh, i think that's i think that's really central to the um really central to the whole dilemma of understanding what piety is so how does how does the argument unfold from that point? Uh, Socrates gives a number of examples. Um, he talks about things being carried, uh, and therefore they are carried things. He talks about things being led, and therefore they are thing. He, he talks about things being led, and therefore they are led things. Uh, there's a few other examples. Moshe, your thoughts? Um. Well, I, I thought the thing about carried and being carried and led and being led was so opaque. I mean, I just I couldn't make any sense out of it at all. But I want to go back to the to the to the reading. Uh, I just want to, from a logical point of view, I, I want to set up where the where the argument is going to fall apart. Uh, Euthyphro says, "I would certainly say that the pious is what all the gods love." And the opposite, what all the gods hate, is impious. Now, we call that a universal quantifier, that all uh, means every single one of the gods is going to have to be on board with this, okay? Uh, every single one of the gods has to agree about what piety is, and everybody has, everyone uh, also agrees about what impiety is. And you can, from this point, defeat almost any argument because. Um, uh, because uh, the um, uh, the equation has been already made between the gods and, and man, that that the that uh, man uh, the gods have differing opinions on things, just as man has different uh, opinions on things, and uh, uh, the places where uh, everybody agrees would be on statements of fact and uh, statements of uh, what we call later a priori knowledge, like knowledge of mathematics. Uh, but where they disagree are on things like love and justice and beauty and things like that. So uh, Euthyphro is being set up for from the very beginning uh, with this idea that all the gods have to be able to agree. Thank you. And I, I like the the term that you use, universal qualifier. I think that's that's how you said it. And it's um, quantifier or quantifier. Yeah. Um, and and I like that. I mean, I, I think that's. Uh, I think that's very helpful to understand is that there is this appeal to what is assumed to be a universal, but is not necessarily known to be a universal. Um, and, you know, how do we, how do we approach that? Especially when, um, when there is sometimes disagreement among the universal beings. Uh, so the gods are not necessarily always in agreement with themselves and so, you know, originally Socrates says, well, what happens if you follow one God, but another God disagrees with that God? And so then they start boiling it down and say, well, okay, we have to throw away those areas where the gods disagree. Uh, and we have to take only the areas where the gods agree. 
but how do we know what the gods agree on, right? So there's assumptions being made here and this idea of the universal quantifiers, uh, which really kind of shut down the argument maybe, or they're, they're trying to use it to shut down. Euthyphro is trying to use it to shut down the argument. Greg, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a very um, you know, distinct uh, uh, point here. All the gods, he just uh, you know, point out uh, something very fundamental regarding particular and, uh, and the universal. But, uh, but uh, my feeling here is that it, 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 Plato doesn't seem to really uh, want to say, uh, not so much interested really to know exactly what uh, Piety, Piety is. He is using Piety as a, a point of argument to really establish uh, the form as an independent thing from the gods. And, uh, and he go around and around about a lead and lead. And also, he, he, he will elaborate later on is a, is a love, is a care, is a dear, is a service to see that, okay, if it's not a love, there must be care. If it's not a care, it must be dear. If it's not dear, it must be service. Go around and around as if to take all the possible uh, reason that God may be uh, in control or, or maybe the reference for all these things. And then, and then so, but uh, he, he didn't, he really exposed them, but he didn't really address them. In a sense that it's, it's, it's dialogue, it seemed to me, is more sort of expose all the flaws that are by reference to, uh, reference to, to, to God's as a standards for everything. That's one hand, but also expose in a subtle way all the different uh, type of, of logical reason later on become important and discussing different separate, separate dialogues, for example, definition and, uh, and the cause effect, but also category. Like there's a few points that, that Plato laid out as what is bigger, what is small. This is very fundamental, I think, in terms of try to understand that Later on, I think these things will be the, the foundation for Aristotle, for, for his logic. You know, category and definition are very, very important. Can I jump in here? Yes, indeed, Eva. So I am wondering how much are we messed up with the idea of religion that we were born with? How would discussion, this discussion would happen if there was only one religion or if there was only one belief connection way and which was not even called religion so how much of our own personal i will say historical junk or trauma are we bringing into this discussion and how much was it uh in this text uh, that is happening here. So I was just curious mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think what you have said, Evan, what, and what Greg said um, is, uh, you know, a, they're important points and I think they tie together. You know, Eva, you talked about personal perspectives and certainly each of us is a, you know, being that we define ourselves. Nobody defines me unless I let them define me. So it's always in my power to, to define who, who and what I am. Um, but, uh, you know, when Greg mentioned categories and definitions are important, 
uh, I think that's the idea of maybe tying together who, who and what you are and your perspectives with everybody else. Um, and that's an important point in terms of trying to find maybe this one form of, of, uh, of piety. Uh, you know, it was at, uh, it's around uh, 7, 6, 6D, 6E and 7A, uh, where Socrates says, bear in mind that I did not bid you tell me one, of, one or two of the many pious actions, but that form itself that makes all pious actions pious. For you agree that all impious actions are impious and all pious actions pious through one form. Or don't you remember? It's actually it's right there on that page. Of it. Yeah. So I'm just reading the, the bit about uh, Socrates there, the third or fourth line, third or fourth section from the bottom. Euthyphro says, I do. And then Socrates says, tell me then what this form itself is so that I may look upon it and using it as a model say that any action of yours or another's that is of that kind uh, that is of that kind is pious and if it is not that it is not euthyphro says well then what is dear to the gods is pious what is not is impious so euthyphro kind of takes this this you know bit of a cop out um, where he stops reasoning and he just he he says you know it is what it is uh, what is dear to the gods is pious and what is not is impious. Um, so how, how does he arrive at that conclusion? That's not a reasoned conclusion. That's maybe just one from his own individual perspective, one from maybe his own historical perspective, like you were talking of. Um, maybe it's, it's lack of ability to put piety and, and definition into these categories that Greg was talking about. So is there a single form of piety? And, and you know, as Greg mentioned earlier, is uh, can you use God as the standard for that? So then that gets us back into that, um, that logical flow at, uh, in that section that we read together from 9D to 10A. Um, and so what is the cause and what is the effect? Uh, so is the, the, the ending question in that uh, section when Socrates says, we shall soon know better whether it is. Consider this, is the pious being loved by the gods because it is pious, or is it pious because it is being loved by the gods? So what's the cause and what's the effect? And, you know, cause and effect uh, is the difference between, uh, or, cause and effect, we need to consider the difference between subject and object, which I mentioned earlier, you know, the idea that the subject is that which is affected by something. Uh, so Socrates then says, well, if you're loved by the gods, are you affected by that love from the gods? And the object receives the action. So are you the object of the gods' love or are you the subject of the gods' love? And I think that's an important it's especially important distinction to make um, because I think Socrates then, you know, says that if, if we can't separate the subject from the object, it winds up being like the statues of Daedalus. So again, he brings in the statue of Daedalus uh, motif, which uh, he brought in in Mino, these statues that were so lifelike that they seem to almost run around on themselves. 
and they keep going around and around and nobody was tying them down. So he uses that kind of as a, as a metaphor for knowledge. Um, but this idea of separating the subject from the object, I, I thought was particularly interesting. So what does he, what does he do in this, in this logical sequence? So first he says, um, you know, is that which is being carried uh, is a carried thing? And they say, yes, it is. That which is being led, is it a led thing? Yes, it is. That which is being seen, it is, is, it, it is a thing seen. That which is being loved by a god is a god love thing. So in the very first instance, in each of those little logical connections, the subject is the thing that is the, the, the action of being. So there's an action of being carried, being led, being seen, being loved by God, right? So that's the subject. And then the object in each of the cases is the thing. So we have the carried thing because it is being carried. We have the thing led because it is being led. We have the thing seen because it is being seen. And we have the God love thing because it is being loved by God. So there's that kind of account of the reasons why that separates the subject from the object. Um, and I, I thought that was really kind of interesting what, what Socrates did there. Well, really interesting and particularly so um, because, uh, you know, of the, the point of technology that we exist in now and and our search for uh for the ability to uh, affect quantum entanglement and so those who have been with this uh series since the beginning will know that one of my pastimes is to follow quantum computing um and the development developments in quantum computing and i had the the real pleasure yesterday to attend just a wonderfully explained session on quantum computing it was just so well explained the whole connection in the, the the developing science of quantum computing, but we have this fundamental problem with quantum computing called the observer effect, which is you know as soon as you uh, in physics as soon as you observe a quantum effect, it changes. Uh, so the act of observation actually causes a change. And actually, when we had our uh, when we had our dialogue uh, on the Carmides um, about a month or, or two ago. I think it was Joel at the time who said that, uh, you know, as soon as he thinks about himself, his definition of self changes, like the very act of thinking about yourself changes yourself. Um, and so, you know, we have this question about what is the subject and the object? And I think it is a particular relevance, you know, to us in the, us in this particular technological point of de development that we're at. And what do we use as a standard, you know, to go back to the question that Greg asked uh, about, you know, in this case of Euthyphro using God as a standard to judge, um, or do we use something else as a standard? Um, how do we fit our own perspectives into it? You know, the question that Eva asked, uh, the, our own perspectives in, in life. And so what do you think about that, that sequence of, of logic that, that leads to the conclusion um at at uh where was it it was the conclusion at uh, 11a um where socrates says but if the god loved and the pious were the same my dear euthyphro 
then if the pious was being loved because it is pious, the God-loved would also be being loved because it was God-loved. And if the God-loved was God-loved because it was being loved by the gods, then the pious would also be pious because it was being loved by the gods. So he set up a bit of a, a bit of a feedback loop there, maybe. Um, so we have Kevin with your hand up. Uh, Kevin, welcome to Plato's Pod. And what are yes, your thoughts? Thank you, James. I listen carefully. You know, loudly. I'm not sure my common maybe offense or uh, just let me. You know, like because you managing cotton computing, mm -hmm. you know, that's uh, cause uh, effect. Also, recently, uh, another forum we learned uh, Dao Jim. It's if you heard it, though, it's the way can be told, it's not the Tao. The name can be said, can be spoken, it's not the name. So that's kind of, you know, similar kind of cause effect, objective or subjective, obviously similar. That's uh, one. Um, observation for me, we think the Easter philosophy or logic is a different Western. From that, uh, it put like a traditional, good or bad. Actually, for me, fundamentally, perceive the same, the method could be uh, if you use abstract or it's fundamentally similar to. Mm -hmm. I don't want to waste your time and explain more because <laughs> of <off> topic. <laughs> Thank you, and uh, appreciate your perspective on that, and particularly, you know, this idea that, you know, Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy, that there are differences, but maybe there's also similarities, and, you know, maybe it's a question of finding similarities that uh, will lead us to some new knowledge and to some particular recollection of, of a general form of something. You know, I think it's, you know, to go back to what Eva said about each having different perspectives and different histories. Um, it actually reminds me of something that when I was listening to episode number five on uh, the Phaedrus, something that Jane said uh, is that, um, you know, the... That we can only know fragments of reality because we're we're only you know each of us has a limited lifespan. Um, we can't know everything in our limited lifespan, but we can see you know fragments of reality, and maybe it's this idea of getting together um, that will lead us to put these fragments together to then start to see this grand picture. J.K., what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, so you know. Um Thinking about the uh, these uh, you know cause and effect and the uh, and um, the different uh, ways of uh, one affects the other subject object and so forth. So I'm thinking maybe it's uh, you know uh, piety is a kind of a relational you know form that uh, that also changes. Like uh, uh, you can't take the becoming out of being or the being being out of becoming. They kind of go go together, and they, and it changes with time. And so, what was uh, at one time in pious, you know, uh, will be you know pious at another time uh, with new new knowledge and new ways of thinking. So, um, just like you said, at the uh, at the quantum level, the observer affects what is what is there, right? and you can't. Get away from that we can't get away from our subjectivity and view something uh, purely objective it's always a, rela a relational process and so 
maybe that's what the, you know the, the form of the pious is. It, it's continually changing with uh, you know uh, with the circumstances. Great. I really like the words, the way you put that. Piety is a relational form and can't take the being out of becoming and can't take the becoming out of being. Um, it, it reminds me, too, of this. You know, again, it, it reminds me of Timaeus 28a, as I think many things seem to do these days. Um, but it reminds me, too, of the, our discussion, our last discussion on the Critias and this idea um, that there is a divine portion in people. Um, so remembering the Critias was that story of Atlantis and the, the Atlanteans were this wonderful civilization. They operated in harmony for a long time. And then they started to lose their divine portion. That word, the, the, that phrase divine portion was used. And maybe that kind of just speaks to what you just said, JK, in, in terms of can't take the being out of becoming and can't take the becoming out of being. There's always this divine portion, this divine portion, if we think of that as relating to the realm of being, that which always is and never becomes, but that portion stays in us um, as long as we let it stay in us. Um, but in, this, in the case of the Atlanteans, when we talked about Critias, they lost enough of that divine portion. It was mixed with too much mortality, too much assumptions, uh, too much rigid definition, you know, those, those rules written down in stone, that they lost that. And they became, they went from a state of order to a state of disorder. And that was why the Atlanteans fell, or so goes the story. So I really like the way you put that. And I really like the way it ties to what we learned about the Atlanteans in our last episode. Kevin, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, thank you. I'm going to another approach, just post idea. It's like a dog, it's coexist, like a yin and a yang. It's like a cause effect at the same time. For example, in mathematics, we have a, a Mandel broad set and complex numbers. It's also closer to, you know, explaining this such a thing. For example, it's I square equal to negative one. In high school, we never talk about this. You go into engineer level, you get more and more, all, all makes sense. It's coexist. I like that, uh, you know, that word coexisting, existing at the same time, um, you know, and, and you use some particularly mathematical concepts. I mean, you, you started by talking about the yin and the yang, and there's this wonderful diagram of a circle with, you know, half of it being dark and the other half being light, um, you know, and there's some very interesting mathematics. You mentioned the Mandelbrot set, which is fractal geometry, and certainly Plato is all about geometry, as is as is uh, quantum computing and the and the qubit, which with quantum computing will operate, it's fundamentally uh, geometric. But the Mandelbrot set, you know, is an interesting idea of fractal geometry, and and you know, if if there is this divine portion in us, how does that divine portion fraction into each of each and every one of us? Each each and every one of us contains a fraction or a fractal. Um, of that divine portion, and and how do we preserve that that fractal or that fraction, uh, and not lose that? Um, and I think you know Plato's view would be that dialogue is key to that, and that idea of sharing perspectives, because each of us, you know, again with that with that idea that you know Jay mentioned a few episodes ago was you know each of us is only seeing a, a little fraction. Or a fractal of reality, um, 
and how do we take all of those fractions and how do we put them into something that speaks some sort of sense? Does it does it relate to, to science itself? You know, the, the nature of science itself is is in and this again talks about our you know our episode on the Carmides, which was on science, but the Carmides was, you know, asked the question, is there a science of self? You know, we have all of these other sciences. We have the sciences, uh, we have, you know, uh, combinatorics, for example, you know, science that combines mathematics and geometry. Um, you know, Kevin, you mentioned, um, you mentioned complex um, numbers, you know, the, the value I, which is called the imaginary number. Um, it was really, you know, brought together by Gauss and his student Riemann. Um, and, you know, Gauss actually liked the term, I understand he, he preferred the term lateral. So each number uh, is, is on what's called the real line, which is infinitely dense but then can expand laterally. Uh, I really like that, that term lateral instead of imaginary because there's, there's really nothing imaginary about it. We know that it's, it's real in a sense. Like, I mean, it, we, we, it has an effect, um, but the word imaginary is now used, but Gauss used the term lateral. So, um, you know, how do we take the, this general idea of number, which is infinitely dense from the real line uh, in the complex plane and, and how do we expand it laterally? Uh, I think that's a, a great, um, the, you use the term, Kevin, coexist, and I, I think that's a great idea, actually, that ties that mathematical concept of the com complex plane together. But I think it has a real a real um, relevance to to this discussion. You know, if if we think of the gods as as these eternal beings that, that always are uh, and never become, um, then maybe that's something that is, you know, that, that kind of infinitely dense, you know, analogy of the real line in the complex plane. You know, they, it's never subject to dilution. Each of us gets a part of it, but we can never have the whole of it. And maybe that's why in Timaeus 28a, uh, when they were talking about the realm of being, that which always is and never becomes, the only way you can understand that is through making a reasoned account. And the reason to count, I think, is what is what Socrates was trying to do with Euthyphro between 9b and 11a, uh, is to try to understand what's the subject and the object, what is the cause and what is the effect. Maybe we can maybe we can have a look here at the last reading of it. If you would go to um, the last page there, yeah, that would be great. And Again, just wondering if these are relatively short sections, if, if I could have any volunteers to read this particular um, passage, again, between Socrates and Euthyphro. I could do one of the roles if somebody could do the other. Yeah, I'd love to do, do Euthyphro. Okay. Okay, I'll, I'll be Socrates. Excellent, thank you. To sacrifice is to make a gift to the gods whereas to pray is to beg from the gods. Definitely, Socrates. It would follow from this statement that piety would be a knowledge of how to give to and beg from the gods. You understand what I said very well, Socrates. That is because I am so desirous of your wisdom and I concentrate my mind on it. 
so that no word of yours may fall to the ground. But tell me, what is this service to the gods? You say it is to beg from them and to give to them. I do. And to beg correctly would be to ask from them things that we need. What else? And to give correctly is to give them what they need from us. For it would not be skillful to bring gifts to anyone that are in no way needed. True, Socrates. Piety would then be a sort of trading skill between gods and men? Uh, trading, yes, if you prefer to call it that. I prefer nothing unless it is true. But tell me, what benefit do the gods derive from the gifts they receive from us? Well, thank you both for that. That's uh, very much appreciated. And uh, I think here we, we have this idea, you know, again, if we're using the gods as a standard for piety, um, what is it that the gods would want from us in our expression of piety? Um, and so maybe we, we can tie this into this idea of cause and effect here. You know, what, what, is, what, is the, what is the cause of what the gods are looking from, from, for from us? Uh, and what is the, what is the effect? Um, just wondering what people think about this, this section and, and this idea of, of piety as being some sort of a trait. If we're, if we're pious, uh, does that get us some sort of special favor that we get if we're not pious? Um, and again, do the gods love us because we're pious? Or is it because we are pious that we are loved by the gods? Um, and, and so is it this, this kind of trade that's going on here? Or is there, is, there some, is there something wrong with this idea of the trade? Moshe, what are your thoughts? Um, I just want to point out that in the Joette translation of uh, this, uh, of, of, uh, of this dialogue, uh, affairs of trade uh, is translated, uh, or, or trade is translated as affairs of business, uh, which makes, it, I mean, the terms of this make it very vulgar. And it's important to point out the histrionics of this. Um, I mean, I think so, in order to be able to understand what, uh, what Socrates is getting at. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. And, and it's good to remind uh, constantly that the translation uh, is, is really, and this is something I learned from one of our earlier episodes, that the idea that, that translation is according to meaning. Um, and so each translator discerns a different meaning. And so the translation that you just referred to, Moshe, is you know, the idea of meaning, uh, the, the idea that trading is a business. Um, and I think you were used the word vulgar. Um, you know, is, is it this kind of uh, is it this kind of purely functional transaction that we have with the gods in our relationship with the gods um, that we enter into this functional transaction that we get we get and we give. You know, is it is it that really is is that what piety and is that what life is about in terms of our relation with the with the gods? Is it is it a business transaction? Is there is there equal value being exchanged here? 
I mean, really, the question at the end is, you know, what do the gods get from us? The gods have everything, don't they? They're, they're the eternal beings. What could they possibly get from us that would be of value to them? And why would they need it? And why would they need it? Yeah. Do we, are we ascribing some sort of human characteristics to the gods? That they're needy beings, that they need something? Would a god actually need something? It's purely anthropomorphic. Yeah. Anthropomorphic. Uh, interesting idea. We, we put our own perspectives on the gods, right? And again, maybe that maybe that warning that uh, that was put at, in Critias at 107, uh, this warning about you know speaking of things that we can't possibly know. You have Jane with uh, your hand up. Jane, what are your uh, thoughts on this? Uh, I just wanted to make, I guess, a small note about the gods uh, because I'm trying to evaluate this from the based on other dialogues that I've read and and. From what Socrates said in, in multiple different dialogues, I, I would say that he does not view the gods as being eternal beings. And he seems to be indirectly questioning them all the time. Uh, from, from, again, from other dialogues, it would seem that Socrates would relate any existing thing with a physical body to be something that is unable to reach the the realm of eternal, the realm of what is, uh, because I don't remember which dialogue this was in, but he specifically mentions that one of the reasons that he does not fear death is because to him, death is a kind of way of freeing himself from his body and finally reaching that world of the eternal. So to me, it would seem that Socrates views gods as something that has something mortal to it and therefore does not understand about these forms in full and again that the argument that um, the gods always quarrel among themselves also sort of suggests this idea that they are not in fact internal beings and so just just like humans perhaps they are able again within the the universe of socrates these gods are able to see fragments of what is what is eternal but just like humans but only in a in maybe a wider specter and so we, we still remain with with the uh problem of them not having access and humans not having access and from again from the logic that i'm getting that socrates implies is that a human when he is alive and living in this world will never be able to get the full understanding of the eternal idea. And all that you're left with is this sort of wise unknowing of everything and this openness um, to realizing how, how little you know about those eternal ideas that hold some kind of objective truth in them. That's it, thank you. Yeah, I think this, this idea that you mentioned just at the end of knowing what you don't know, um, you know, for again, Socrates was famous for, you know, announcing what the oracle said about him through his friend Caraphon, who relayed what the oracle said about Socrates was that he was the smartest man alive, for he knew one thing, which is that he knew nothing. Um, 
And maybe that's particularly relevant and important when we come to appreciating this, this distinction that time is 28a between that which always is and never becomes and that which becomes but never is. Um, and so I think that's a, an important point that you raise. And, um, you know, where we, where we go with that, I think is, is, you know, that that's, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned Socrates kind of welcoming death as an escape. And I think that was from the Phaedo that, uh, that you were uh, mentioning there that, uh, you know, kind of this realm of the soul is separate from the physical realm that we exist in. The, phys- the physical realm is the realm that's limited. Um, you know, certainly in the physics, we know that action is always uh, respond. Action is always matched by reaction in equal and opposite measure. But is the soul actually subject to that? Uh, is, is there any limitation on the soul? Would you want to construct a universe in which there was a limitation on the soul? Would that be a good thing? Um, and maybe this this idea of piety, you know, again to go back to this screen image uh, that I've got on my screen, this this painting of Galileo being subjected to the Inquisition, being condemned by the Inquisition to not being able to publish his views, which they assume was impious. Maybe that's kind of an artificial restriction on the soul, or an assumed restriction on the soul. But is the soul? actually something that can be restricted that way um and maybe that's what you were talking about jane in terms of you know i think when you mentioned that idea of the phaedo where socrates is about to to go to his death um but looks upon it as an escape maybe an escape from the physical realm and into the less limited or unlimited realm of the of the soul moshe your thoughts well on um my take on the overall is that um, the human beings don't really exist. And I don't think piety really exists either. And the reason why I say that is because uh, in the Phaedrus, I mean, you have this thing from the Timaeus that you like, and I like that too, but I like this thing from the Phaedrus where the gods are what they are because of their closeness to the forms. Um, And this this idea that um, being which is never becoming and becoming which is never being is a way of saying that that um, the forms never change. They're eternal. Um, um, they're, they're, you know, they're eternal, they're unchanging, but they are directly knowable, okay? And they are knowable by the soul. And we know uh, from uh, Plato's account of how uh, human beings, how a, a soul gets into a human being as opposed to a, as opposed to a, an ant, is because of its it it uh, its proximities to the forms, you know, and the closer as they crawl and they scratch against each other to uh, to uh, get that amount of knowledge that means that they will become a human being, and then that is further differentiated into depending upon the the closest that you have to the forms. Of the soul has to the forms, whether you become a, a sophist or a warrior or a philosopher or anything like that. Um, why do I say that piety doesn't exist? Because if it, it, it if we're saying that the soul is the thing that exists and that the soul gets into the human being, the human being becomes and dies, but the soul doesn't because the soul goes back and scratches again to 
come into some other physical physical reality, some sort of physical existence. I, would, I don't want to use the word reality because I want to make I want to equate that to what Plato took reality to be, which was which was the forms. But to come into physical existence, which will eventually, you know, it, it will cease because that's what happens when you become. And then, the, you know, the, as I said, the soul, the soul will go back. But why is there no piety? There is no piety because the soul, uh, the, the soul only gets knowledge by its proximity to the forms, and the gods get um, uh, get become gods by their proximity to the forms, and. It's not the gods that need piety. It's certainly not the forms that need piety. Piety may be a form, but it's not something that human beings transactionally or any other way can get a grasp on. Thank you. I, I, you put that very powerfully. I think the, um, you know, the idea that the gods are what they are because of their proximity to the forms and that the forms are knowable by the soul. I think if, if I um, paraphrased you correctly there, um, and I write down these ideas, and that's one that particularly struck me, this idea that the forms are knowable by the soul. And and so you you talked about Phaedrus, which was, you know, I I mean, it's it's just that whole idea of of understanding the general form that was so front and center in the themes that we, we discussed in the Phaedrus, you know, understanding, getting this proximity to the general form. We're all the time we're subjected to the particulars of existence, you know, so the particulars of piety or the particulars of virtue, the particulars of this or the particulars of that, there's so many particulars uh, in the course of our lives. Uh, the particulars, maybe we just think of as examples, you know, kind of what Mino did in, in the Mino where he gave examples of, of virtue and what Euthyphro is doing in this dialogue by giving examples of piety, but never being able to trace it back or to root it, to use a bit of a mathematical expression, maybe to be able to root it in a general form. And the general form maybe being kind of analogous to the, uh, you know, again, what I mentioned earlier, what Kevin made me think of the, this idea of the real line in the complex plane, the real line is being infinitely dense and never dissolves, never, never loses its capacity. It, it always retains infinite capacity. And so, you know, to, to this idea that, uh, that the forms are knowable by the soul, I think is a very important one, as, as you put it. Um, and how do we attain that knowledge? How do we attain that knowledge of the forms? Um, I think it was clear in the Phaedrus that communication is essential so that we work with the same, th that we compare our ideas and we, we, we find the, you know, the, the idea of relativity or the relational uh, aspects of these ideas. I think that was what... Um, can't remember who said it earlier. Was it J.K. Maybe that said piety is a relational form. Um, you know, how, how do we relate these forms if, if by any other means than by discussion and dialogue, like what we're doing here? Is, is there any other means that we could find these general forms that we're looking for? Maybe to put the question that way, can anybody think of any other means by which you know, each of us having had a glimpse of, of truth and beauty and virtue and all of these things, but none of us having a full grasp on it, how can we find these general forms? Is it a question of trading with the gods or 
this this business transaction with the gods, you know, to to say I'm pious, either because you love me or because I love you, um, and somehow we get that greater grasp uh, of of this this eternal idea, uh, or is it by some other means? Um, you know, again, I just keep thinking about the account of the reasons why. You know, at the end of Mino, where you know, again, having said that knowledge is recollection, Socrates then further says that recollection is the account of the reasons why. And how do we make that account? And how do we how do we ensure that the account is complete before we go and start to act on what we think is our knowledge? And how do we how do we delineate or distinguish between what we know and what we don't know um you know again to go into this uh, image i have on my screen you know at the at the time uh, galileo could see that things weren't as they had been assumed and that things didn't all orbit the earth he saw that there was there were moons orbiting jupiter and so that really turn what was perceived to be knowledge on its head uh, and he was called impious for it so how do we how do we delineate how do we define create that definition between what is knowledge and what is not knowledge and how do we ensure that the account of the reasons why uh, is complete before we go and we accuse people of impiety and and cause all sorts of things like the death of socrates um, like the prosecution by euthyphro of his father um, how do we how do we ensure that these actions are just which really gets us into thinking about the idea of justice and that great dialogue the republic which i'd love to do in season two of our of our podcast um jk your thoughts yeah it seems like uh you know the the knowledge and uh, and these forms that the um are are you know accumulative across time and that the forms are are not uh, you know static, that they are they uh, they are something like uh, Carl Jung's idea of uh, the archetypes. You know, they of the unconscious. They 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 accumulate uh, you know uh, knowledge. You know, and and it's and it and it they they change, and they they're added on. You know, with uh, you know, uh, the, the more we progressively learn about ourselves and the world. So I think that would kind of account for why, you know, someone like, you know, uh, Galileo was, <laughs> you know, was, uh, uh, was condemned for his, uh, his uh, scientific uh, knowledge of, uh, of what is the truth. So I, I think maybe that's what Socrates was trying to get at. That the, but I think maybe perhaps Plato did not. Plato have a different view that he wanted to elevate uh, knowledge to the status of uh, of uh, of um, mathematics uh, and mathematical truth uh, does not change, and maybe there's a kind of a tension there between Socrates and Plato. You know, as Plato was writing these uh, Socratic dialogues, he he eventually developed his own idea of what uh, what truth is. And I wonder if uh, how much that diverged from what Socrates was doing as a um, 
as a kind of a pursuit of truth by, um, by you know, by rhetoric and by um, by dialogue. You know, so. Thank you, and I, I um, what you just said about truth and mathematics uh, caused me to change my screen image here to the Taurus, which uh, is an interesting object, um, and I put it in the uh, the notes for this session because the Taurus is comprised of two circles, and a circle, there, circle is consists of a ratio that's incomplete; uh, it's incommensurable, uh, and that's that's pi, pi, the circumference over the diameter. Of the circle and and that ratio goes on forever so it's not necessarily complete and so you ask the question is you know is knowledge like mathematics something that is complete uh and i'm wondering if we have things like these incommensurable um aspect that affects mathematics and geometry like pi um as, as something that is not necessarily complete but is completely fundamental to the operation of mathematics. Um, so you, you asked a very good question. I, I think that's a question that I'd like to hear from the rest of the participants. Um, you know, is knowledge definite uh, and, and unchanging? And is that something that Plato thought knowledge was um, or not? Uh, and is there some sort of tension here? In that, uh, I like the way you said too that the the forms are not static; they accumulate over time. And you use the word archetypes. Um, you know, archetype is kind of this ideal idea of model, something that can be built upon, um, but is not uh, static. Um, and I, I thought that was a pretty was a very good use of words, and I think really gives cause to. To reflect on the nature of the forms themselves. You know, we talked in our last episode on the Critias about the nature of time and whether time is linear, uh, which I think is, you know, a pretty wide assumption now. You know, when we go through our daily lives, we're not thinking of time as being other than something that runs from the past to the future in a straight line. I think that's kind of just maybe a built-in assumption that we operate with, and maybe that's something that our senses bring to us. Um, but you know, in I think we made the point in when we were discussing the Critias that time could maybe be circular. Time goes in circles, and I think that's maybe what um, in Timaeus, when when the, when Plato first started talking about Atlantis, he started talking about Atlantis at the beginning of the Timaeus. And then he continued the discussion in the Critias. But at the beginning of uh, the Timaeus, he talked about these cycles of creation and destruction over time. And uh, he talked about great fires and great floods that have destroyed ancient civilizations. Um, and, and we know, you know, as I mentioned, I think the last episode, we know that there was, for example, a, um, an asteroid that hit near off the coast of Mexico um, about I think it was 200 million years ago that caused such a uh, such a firestorm uh, from the release of energy on its impact uh, that it wiped out almost all of the existence across the planet. Uh, we know that these cycles of destruction happen periodically and that memory is lost. Um, we have to recreate memory over time, and there was that great you know sequence. Um, where Solon goes to visit the 
the Egyptian priests and was told about this ancient civilization, Atlantis, that had been forgotten, uh, you know, some 9,600 years, maybe before Plato's time or before Socrates' time. So uh, I like this idea of, uh, you know, this accumulation over time and that time may not be a linear thing. It may be something that is circular uh, and a circle has no beginning and no end. And I think that's a key to understanding maybe uh, the connection between geometry and Plato's philosophy, which was, I think, based on geometry. He, he was a geometer. Moshe, you have your hand up. What are your thoughts on this? There we go. Okay. Um, I always find this uh, particular podcast that you do to be um, very stimulating. Uh, so thanks for the work. Uh, I, I want to point out that um, um, that I, I want to point out when you're talking about the relational nature uh, of time. Um, uh, if you well, I don't want to get too hung up on that. Let me just point out: you, you keep saying that time goes forward. Okay. Well, our clocks would work just as accurately if they went backward. And the 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 uh, the uh, uh, the formulas of physics work perfectly, whether their time is going forward or backward. I mean, we're simply accustomed to seeing it go from one to twelve, but it it could as as functionally go from twelve to one. Okay, and that that doesn't lead to any sort of strange physics. It, it might lead to strange experience. Uh, we might be in sort of a Merlin sort of situation where we're grown, you know, we, we start out old and we, we, we grow young and we keep trying to, you know, trying to figure this out. But I, I want to point out that even if time is linear, it doesn't have to always, it doesn't have to go forward. It can go backward. Uh, the second thing uh, is, is about pi. And uh, pi, um, it, if we, if we acknowledge that there is something that, that there's are, are that there are actual infinite collections, then at the standpoint at, at the um, uh, from the perspective of the forms, you know what's what Spinoza used to talk talked about from the perspective of, of eternity. Uh, pi might pi would be a, a, an actual infinite uh, collection. It wouldn't. It, it, it would be infinite, but it wouldn't be something that you could always add one more to. It would all, it would completely be there. Uh, uh, if you're looking, it, 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 it's possible it could completely be there if you're looking at it from the, the standpoint of eternity. So I, I wanna make those two observations. The third observation that I wanna make is that Socrates is not removed completely from the pre-Socratic materialists, okay? That the materialists, going back, you know, from Thales uh, to um, Anaximander, and and um, um, and the you know the de the development of, of materialism into atomism, and and um, and then you had the, the the Pythagorean turn toward uh, toward mathematics, and we get the idea of the eternal. But in Anaxagoras, we have the idea of mind in nature as uh, comes out, uh, the argument is, is that mind can be seen in nature in the form of reason, okay? And why do we say that? Because in, in nature, we can see an order, okay? It is a cosmos, it is, it is, it's an ordered thing. 
And how do we see order in humanity? Well, we see order in humanity, or we see reason in humanity in politics. Because in politics, you see men, men, women, organizing themselves using reason. So it follows from reason, you know, from uh, reason, the logi being understood by noose is manifest in human existence in politics. And politics, if we take a look at some of the other thinkers like Aristotle, is something that is done by individual men. So we conclude from that that individuals have reason and have the capacity to reason. So that is why, as human beings, we want to exploit that reason and use that to understand what reality, what reality is. Those are just my observations. Thank you very much. The platonic (laughs) turn, by the way, is that Plato had had broken away. He's even further detached from the materialist than Socrates is. And he is now describing what reality is because reality to him has to be something eternal, beautiful, you know, permanent, infinite, non-changing. Okay. And that's what he's giving us and what we're trying to struggle with. But it comes from a material basis. Well, thank you. And, and, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the, um, the uh, support on, on the, the stimulation that you're finding from these sessions. And I, I, I get as much stimulation from the participants, uh, I think, as, as I hope I provide. Um, but I, I learn something new every time. And I, I think, you know, what, what you just said um, is an example of that. Uh, you know, this idea that both time and physics work forward as well as backward. Um, I think that's a key idea, a key connection uh, that we can make. And, um, you know, it goes back to, again, this idea of, of making connections, which is something that uh, uh, I think Greg mentioned in the last episode about kind of this harmony of knowledge and our making connections. And JK spoke in the last episode about the, the forms being a model or a lattice for society. And I, I think where this is all leading to, as you mentioned, is this idea of politics and how we apply reason in our relations to each other. Um, and I think that's where I'd like to go very much in season two of this podcast is the, uh, you know, that great work, the, the Republic, you know, and some have held that, uh, you know, Plato was tyrannical and wanted to set up this kind of almost soulless society uh, society governed by rules, not necessarily by reason. Uh, and I'd, I'd like to very much explore that. Personally, I'd like to challenge that, but I think we should at least explore that. And I think, I think these dialogues that we're having are going to be very good at equipping us to explore that in, in season two of, uh, of this podcast. Um, you know, certainly there's great logic, I think, in, in the idea that that time and physics work both ways, both forward and backwards. Um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Moshe, I think that's that's pretty key. You know, logic, if something's logical, it has to be logical in all instances. Um, at least that's the way I see logic. Uh, it, it, it can't be logic in one direction and not in the other. So I, I found that was a, a very powerful expression. And then this idea that we have to retain the capacity 
of reason. And then you mentioned Anaxagoras, which I think I mentioned at the beginning too. So I just, again, a shout out here for uh, Peter Adamson's uh, podcast, uh, History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. And that was the, uh, I've had some time to spend just uh, reviewing the earlier episodes of that. One of his first few episodes was on Anaxagoras. Uh, and this idea that uh, mind is separate from matter, um, maybe an idea too that uh, that Descartes brought out much later. But th this idea that maintaining the separation uh, allows mind to observe matter. So the question of who is the what is the observer and what is the observed, and then we get back into this idea of subject and object again uh, that we've been talking about earlier in, uh, in this episode. So we've got one qualification, if I can. Yeah, the Cartesian doubt, fifteen hundred or so years later, is separate. It, it, the Greeks did not have that particular point of view. The Greeks, to the Greeks, the, the human being was as much a part of nature and mind was as mind was. Mind was a part of nature, and the human being was a part of nature. And we didn't get to this radical separation of mind and body. Or, or soul and nature until hundreds of years later. And there's a big question of whether or not uh, Descartes was right. I mean, he certainly overreached in a lot of places, but uh, you know, whether that's radical skepticism is even supportable, um, um, that, that, that's really an open question, at least to me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, and I think that's, uh, that's a good point to make. I was thinking more about just kind of, you know, dualism of, of mind and matter, you know, the, the initial basis, I think, of Descartes' uh, thought, uh, but that, that also tied, I think, somewhat somewhat to uh, Anaxagoras, so um, definitely a, a good point. So we've got about uh, 15 minutes left in our recording, um, and so I see Greg and JK with your hands up, so we'll take Greg. So I'd just like to uh, kind of continue what Marsha was uh, uh, was, uh, was uh, pointing out uh, about uh, you know the, the materialistic uh, kind of a tradition of uh, of uh, of, uh, of what uh, Socrates and Plato was uh, on on this reasoning. I think the very word itself reason came from Logos. Logos was uh, was originally uh, not really meant for reason, but just a word order. So I think that. But I what I want to say is that. Um, you know, here uh, they, they they choose the subject of piety, and in connection with God, and uh, you know, if it's not God, then what can we be a standard? So it, it, it didn't didn't say specifically, but I think it implies that you know, at the end of the day, it's our reason. Uh, at the time, it might not be very clear the reason, but the elements are there because they they want to to. To undo this facade, I mean the 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 the, the bigger bigger uh, bigger standard of the gods for everything. But if you undo it, what what can we base? So I think uh, it allude to the to the to the to the reason and the reason uh, the entire the reasonability, the method of reasoning was 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 going to take another hundred years. I mean, I, 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 like another fifty years also until Aristotle completed. But but. Uh, Plato and Socrates start the, the journey, uh, pointed to the definition and the category, I mean, category and, uh, and a number of other 
uh, other things and towards uh, towards uh, this uh, this complete uh, logical reasoning to allow the people to really get what is knowledge and then to to really to to be able to seek truth because otherwise truth is just a name how can you how can you get a, how do you know truth what is truth and what's the relation between knowledge and truth and that's that's all kind of a, you see the elements already starting this 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 dialogue definitely and I, I like the way that you you called this a journey and certainly i think we're on a very interesting journey here and uh, the journey is something that i think is best experienced together rather than alone i think together there's a ability to create a lot more reason than there is individually i think as we find certainly with Euthyphro initially making assumptions and then changing his mind because the assumptions are challenged, which wouldn't have happened if he had not been challenged. And so I think it's maybe Socrates' role in these dramas that Plato is bringing to us to challenge and to, uh, to, to kind of extend our journey into paths that we hadn't seen at the beginning because we're, we're not able to see all of those paths uh, individually, we're, we're only able to see certain things. So uh, I think that journey is broadened for all of us. Um, and uh, certainly you mentioned the word logos and, and the question of the order of in, in which knowledge occurs. Uh, and I think that's fundamental to the account of the reasons why. And again, to this question that is brought up in Euthyphro 10D to 11A, um, this idea of what is the what is the cause and what is the effect? What is the subject and what is the object? And if if the pious person is both the subject and the object, um, in 11a, I think Socrates really kind of says that it's a bit of a feedback loop, um, which, you know, to tie it into the realm of quantum computing, a feedback loop is not something that you want to create in, in quantum computing. You know, as we get this fantastic technology, we need to understand the difference between subject and object. Um, so uh, I, I really like the way you, you put some of those ideas. JK, over to you. Yeah, I wanted to, you know, um, talk about this idea of time. You know, you said that time uh, is circular and, uh, or it's a, it's a straight line. So it seems like there are two uh, images of time. And uh, and I think the uh, the, the so, uh, Stoics had a, had two these two images of time the Chronos and the Ion, and so there's uh, you know there's Nietzsche's uh, eternal return that's another image of time that uh, is it looks like is it sounds like circular. I'm not sure what uh, if it's a straight line or a circular, but. Uh, if it's a return, but it's a return of, of not the same, but the difference, then of course, and so that uh, that could be, you know, it could be neither circular or or a straight line. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so if you look at it mathematically, would uh, would time be circular then, in terms of uh, how Plato sees it? That's a it, it's a good question, and I'm wondering what others think. I mean, it's uh, um, you know earlier Kevin mentioned yin and yang, which has a particular geometric rep representation uh, contained within a circle. Um, can you have differences within a circle, but not 
not at the circumference of the circle. The circumference of the circle is continuous, right? So you've got a continuum at the circumference, but inside maybe you can have lots of differences, lots of peaks and valleys inside the circle. And certainly I think in in three-dimensional geometry uh, and in mathematical combinatorics, which involves the, the complex plane and combining mathematics and geometry, uh, I think we see many examples of those peaks and valleys. But at the end of the day, pi is pi, right? So pi goes on forever. Uh, and is that, is the, you know, two pi is the circumference of a circle. So maybe there's, maybe pi is kind of that analogy of something that is infinite, not defined, uh, continuous, but can contain difference. I mean, you use the word difference, which I, I thought was an interesting point, and I don't know if others have any thoughts on that and whether Plato had any, any specific views on that. Jane, your ideas? Um, James, I'm not going to be able to um, comment on your uh, mathematical um, perception of view of this because I just, I just don't have the uh, background for that. But um, to the general question of time and how we perceive it, at least based based on the way that I perceive time, it's it's not exactly linear. It's always and I guess things. Oh, sorry about that. Things that we attribute to uh, time, like the change of seasons, uh, like the, uh, the the way that the, the the day comes and goes. It's all circular. So we, we're seeing circular motion of time uh, in a lot of aspects that we attribute to time. But at, despite being that circular motion, there's also this sense of progression that happens to the circular motion itself. I hope that's making sense. And so in, in a way, if we, if we look at it at a, at a, as a picture, it could, it could look like it could, it could resemble a spiral because you're having these circular motions that are also moving, progressing throughout time. Um, and it, by, by moving or progressing, it could be, it could be positive development change or it could be negative development or change. Um, that's it. That's all I want to say. Thank you. Thanks, Jane. And you certainly gave, um, I think, a powerful analogy with the word spiral, you know, and if you think of, you know, maybe the circle, the, the circumference doesn't change. And, you know, a circle is defined as that which has no beginning and no ending. But if you increase or decrease the scope of the circle, you know, make it make it um, increase the radius or decrease the radius of the circle, um, and then you start to get multiple circles working together, then you start to maybe think in your mind, well, okay, maybe there's a spiral and maybe these circles are starting to go in one direction or another. And maybe, maybe that's kind of what we do with our reasons is we are the reasons that we apply and the, the causes and effects that we ascribe to things like piety uh, in this dialogue or any of the other topics that Plato has talked about, maybe maybe that kind of creates a direction that spirals or, or creates a, a course of logic that spirals in one direction or the other. And so maybe that's that, that kind of capacity of reason that we retain in ourselves is that ability 
to create those spirals, to, to increase or decrease the scope of the, the circles. You know, if, if time works in a circular fashion, or at least if time has no beginning and no end, which I think is, is what our experience, experience kind of tells us, you know, it, it just, the past becomes the present, becomes the future, becomes the past, becomes the present, becomes the future. It's this continuous cycle. Um, you know, how do we get differences in that cycle? And yet, you know, time continues. Um, so I think it's a, it's a fascinating subject and fascinating to think of time that way as something that's not just a straight line, something other than a straight line and maybe a circle uh, and something that we can certainly explore either with some specific mathematics and geometry or with analogy, because I think analogy is a perfectly you know, valid way to go for those who don't have you know, specific mathematical or geometric knowledge. Uh, but certainly all of us experience the effects of mathematics and geometry in our everyday lives. And so we can make analogies, I think, that are perfectly acceptable. And I think Plato would be perfectly happy for analogies to be made in, in the course of dialogue. So, so I think that's... It's been a great discussion. I, I wanted to thank everybody. I mean, boy, I've I've got a whole page full of notes from today's sessions that session that uh, have really caused me to think in some of the particular words that have been used and in the connections that have been made. And I think again, the idea of knowledge is as this kind of harmony of connections, which we talked about last time, is really coming to the forefront here. Um, and very much looking forward to our next discussion on the Theotetus, um, which I think will we'll take it to another level. Um, so wanted to thank everybody for uh, participating and just remind everybody that we'll, that we'll keep um, uh, the, the session open after the recording ends for Plato's Cafe, uh, just for a casual discussion for those who would like to stick around and talk about the euthyphro or any of the other dialogues that we've looked at or just philosophy in general. I think that would be great to connect that way. And uh, in the meantime, I will pass it over to Eva to uh, end the official recording part of the session. Eva? Thank you for joining us, friends. Thank you, James, for preparing all this discussion and managing the uh, open discussion. Please stay for Plato's Cafe now, which will not be recorded. Why? Because sometimes we enjoy unrecorded discussions with friends. Until next time, friends. Bye.